media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15? I know we all have particular things that just kind of irritate us a little bit more, maybe get under our skin a little bit more. Um, I think most of us, though, would probably share in the fact that when somebody is mocking somebody, doesn't that seem to be so offensive to you and on a deeper level? I mean, it's one thing to, 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 to just, you know, be hateful and all that. I mean, that's, I'm not saying that that's okay, but there seems to be this form of in mocking somebody that is just like the lowest form of hate. And yet when we open up this word, we begin to see today that it talks about the mocking of Christ and the mocking of, of Jesus. And, and this morning we're going to see what Mark pronounced here. But I, I want to start by going all the way back to Isaiah 53, 5. Hundreds of years before Christ would actually fill this prophecy, we see these words given to the prophet Isaiah, talking about Christ, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Do you think that we have the the capacity to understand the fullness of that? I mean, I think that we can we could read it, we could meditate upon it, we could ponder that, and I think that we would get some measure of that. Do you think that our earthly mind can even begin to capture the fullness of that? That's not nowhere in there does it say, okay, he did this, and now you have your ticket to heaven. Nowhere in there does it say, okay, now you just have this or that. No, there's a depth here, folks, of this prophecy of what Christ did when he died for us that I think is really hard for us to imagine, the completeness of that, how wide and deep that is. Hundreds of years before Christ came in the flesh, this prophecy comes out. And it really is that picture of the, of the gospel that we talk about all the time. How, In one way, the Bible is such a complex book has names that we can't pronounce. It has things that we can't ponder. But in another way, it is so simple because the Old Testament shows us our need and this promise of how God's going to deliver us in that need through the work of Christ. And so we have this Old Testament that shows our rebellion and our need and a prophecies that point us to Christ. In the New Testament, we have the Gospels that tell us about the life of Christ, how he actually lived and how he ministered for those three years. And then the epistles talk about the aftermath of that. Of God. This is now what the Christ-like life looks like. The Bible really is in one way pretty simple that it's all about Christ. And if you miss Christ on any page of the Bible, you've missed the real content of the Bible. It really is in one way that simplistic. Well, what about, you know, Bobby, all those, you know, begats? It's all about Christ, I promise you. Heard some of the best sermons I've ever, you know, heard about Christ from the begats. You know, and these, this lineage that was given. And it was like amazing that even through this, we see the shining of Christ and the beauty of this gospel. Now, I say that this morning, not because that's new to you. You hear that every single week. It's just like I tell you time after time again. You know, basically every sermon is going to come back somewhat to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Because that's where it begins, the beauty of this promise of a Christ that's going to come. But when we begin to see the prophecy in Isaiah... It really is a pretty big prophecy. It's actually chapters 52 and 53. Uh, this is just one verse out of it. And yet 
this is where I want your mind to, to really kind of grasp this morning. Let's read that again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. When we read about the crucifixion, our mind almost always immediately goes to the physical. I mean, I cannot imagine having nails pierce my skin. I can imagine a crown of thorns. I mean, just the thoughts of that bring such a tremendous kind of idea of pain, physical pain. And rightly, we should not minimize that. But it's amazing that if you really look through the Gospels, especially Mark's Gospel, they don't really give a lot of attention to that. They just point that out because that actually was the way that he was crucified and nailed to a cross. They, they did put a crown of thorns upon his head. But when we think about those things, we think about, man, what a great sacrifice, what a loving sacrifice that this Christ did for us in this physical way. And, and yet I would challenge you this morning to, to look at what Mark points out through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and, and say, where did he put his focus? Was it just on this physical pain? Now, in no way do we take light of the blood that Christ shed. Please don't make that, that connection there, that we're making light of the blood and the, the finality of this payment of Christ's blood for our sins. But is that where your mind goes when you think of the crucifixion? The pain of that crown of thorns? The pain of nails and and hands and feet? And yet, what does Mark say? In in this particular gospel, he, he doesn't really say much. I mean, in one place, he simply writes, and they crucified him. He doesn't go down the whole long list of all these things that happened at the crucifixion as far as the physical details of that. Mark makes no mention of nails. He makes one mention of the crown of thorns, and it's even in kind of a different context. He wasn't trying to say how painful that was. He mentions the scourging of Jesus almost in passing. Look at verse 15, Mark 15, 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That's it, folks. That's all he says. It's a point of information not to draw us to this physical hardship that Jesus endured, but he's just given us information there. And so while he doesn't put a lot of attention on the physical nature, he does want us to focus really, really deeply on another aspect of what Christ endured that day. Four different times he mentions the mocking of Jesus. Now again, I I don't know where you are in your attitude toward mocking, But if you saw somebody that was being mocked, isn't there something within you, even as fallen people, that just kind of rises up against that? You almost want to go in there and, you know, kind of put the cape on and save the day. There's just something about mocking that seems to be this lowest form of embarrassment that somebody would try to give. And Mark mentions four different groups. Not the nails, not the crown of thorns, but they're mocking of the Son of God. Look at verse 16 and 17. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hell, King of the Jews. Because they all of a sudden believed, because they recognized Christ for who he really was. 
This first group that mocks Christ and who he is are Roman soldiers. Uh, there's probably about 600. A uh, battalion is one-tenth of a legion, and uh, they gather around. And, and from what we can tell there, the way that Mark is doing this, they were all participating in this. This wasn't just a, a group of three or four over here saying a couple things to Christ, but this is really kind of the feelings and the thoughts and the character of everybody, that they're all attacking Christ. And what are they doing? Not just saying, okay, we don't believe in you. We don't believe that you're the answer to our sin. It's not that they're dealing with this on the theological basis. Folks, they get really, really personal. They mock him. Oh, so you're the king of the Jews? Here, here's your crown. Here's your robe. In other gospels, it says that they gave him a reed and said, oh, here's your scepter, king. Do you see the depth of that? I mean, it's one thing to be an unbeliever. It's one thing to say, okay, we don't believe that you are the Messiah. But it's another thing to then be a mockery. Not so much their lack of understanding, but I want you to look at the vantage point of, this is holy God. This is holy God. And that these men would gather together and they would make light of that. Look what it says in verse 19. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. It doesn't stop there. Look at verse 29. And those who passed by a second group derided him. That word, uh, Greek word blasphemia, what does that sound like to you? Blasphemy, yeah. It's where we get, they derided him. Okay, so this is an attack not just on the physical nature. It's not just the the punishment that he's getting from a whip. It's not just that they're beating him, but they're spitting upon him. They're deranging him here, or deriding him here. And it says that they're wagging their heads and saying. Now, we have kind of a modern version of the head wag. Not trying to be cute here whatsoever. But what... Kind of, it, does it develop within you if somebody comes up there and goes, points to you and just kind of does a little head wag to you? Is there a depth there that begins to <laughs> kind of rouse up a little bit in defensiveness? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, Bobby, you're ugly. That's obvious. I mean, you are. And then all of a sudden, if there's a point in a head wag, Man, there's a depth there like, okay, you're going way beyond my physical ugliness and you're going, you know, to the character. And that's what the scripture says happens here. Why would Mark write about this and he's not writing about, you know, just, you know, all the other things that we focus on? Nails and how painful that would have been. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha. In the Greek, it's like a, a laughter. You who could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Do you begin to grasp a little bit how offensive this is? How this isn't just the unbelief, oh, we don't believe that you're the Messiah. Our theology doesn't equal your theology. We're not just denying the fact that you are the answer, God's the answer for all of our sins. You know, we're not really dealing this on the theological level. No, we are mocking you and who you say that you are and that which you are about to accomplish. There's a depth there, folks, that is important for us to understand. Not just so that we become all sympathetic, that we kind of get all emotional. It's not just for the, the, the development of that emotional kind of feeling. But it's for us to understand the humility of Christ in the midst of all this. Now, I told you a couple of weeks ago when we were in the passage about Pilate. 
When, when Pilate says, and turns to Jesus and says, do you not know the authority that I have? Everything within Bobby Lincoln would have said, I mean, even if I don't take the guy out right then, just a lightning bolt close enough to the feet to be reminded that he's not in authority. How does a lamb stay silent before them? Do you understand this about your Christ? The beauty of, of his silence, even in the face of mockery? This is holy God. This is holy God before them. I mean, I, I don't know that there's too many people that I would face that think so little that they would go and make a mockery wagging their head at something that was deeply, deeply, you know, the presence of holy God. And yet these people are doing that. And it doesn't stop there. This is the second group. Look at the third group. Mark chapter 15, verses 31 and 32. So also the chief priest and with the scribes, okay, all the religious leaders, mocked him to one another, saying, he saved ourselves and he cannot save himself. Now, now, now get this. Try this on. It's one thing if I'm mocking you directly. And now if I get my group and we're talking back and forth, let's put it in terms that we understand. You're at the Georgia-Florida game, okay? And all of a sudden, the opposing team, you know, that you don't root for comes up. And afterwards, after the game yesterday, a lot of Georgia people come up and they begin to kind of mock Florida. Our Florida fan here. <laughs> and so that's kind of, but what if they start doing it amongst themselves, Sherry? Oh my goodness. Do you see the depth of this? Why would Mark include this, guys? Why, why is he giving us such detail of this factor? Why doesn't you say there was a lot of mocking going on? But he really is telling us pretty intensely. When all he just mentioned about the crucifixion and they crucified him. Not a lot of detail there about nails or anything else. But he's really honing in this aspect of making mockery or attempting to make mockery of Christ. Verse 31 and 32 again. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked himself to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They taunt Jesus to save him. They add insult to the address of the Christ. Notice how they called him the Christ? That's a mockery. Then finally, Mark mentions one more group of mockers. He doesn't go into depth. The other gospels do. And that is the thieves on each side. All Mark says in verse 32 is, and those who were crucified him also reviled him. The very thieves that were hanging besides Jesus mocked him and reviled him. Revile means to defame, to taunt. The guilty taunting the innocent. The sinless, uh, the sinner taunting the sinless. Just like we saw last week. That the unjust was, was looking at the just and bringing accusation. And yet the just died for the unjust. The innocent for the guilty. 
I realize on a theological level, guys, we get this. I, I hope that we get this. I hope that we really do embrace the fullness of, of our depravity and the fullness of the sufficiency of what Christ did. We get that theologically, and I'm trying to add color to this. I'm not trying to add it. Mark's adding color to it. Say, do you see how profound this is? Do you see all the other things that are going into this picture? Folks, make no mistake about it. Jesus knew that he would face, this is not a surprise. Go back to Mark chapter 10 real quick. Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. He's already told them, I know this is coming. Why does he do it? Why not just die for us, this physical death? Why why all this other emotional trauma? What about all these other layers that are going on here? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. There's a depth there, guys. That when we embrace the fullness of this gospel, the fullness of what Christ has done for us, it truly does bring healing on so many different levels. There's an old story about, uh, and I'm sure it's probably one of those made-up preacher stories. <laughs> How somebody had gifted uh, their mom and dad who had been married for many, many years and as a, as a wedding anniversary for their 50th anniversary, sent them on a cruise. Something that the, the, the parents never could have fought or done on their own. And so the kids and their love got together, put the money together and, and sent them on the cruise. When they got back and they asked, did you like it? They said, oh man, it was wonderful. It was amazing. Everything about it was just great. Well, mom, dad, did you enjoy the food? Well, we took our food. We took some peanut butter and jelly and some crackers and some other things. Because, you know, we didn't want to spend a lot of money. Mom, it was included. Mom, it, that's part of it. That's the fullness of this cruise thing. Is that not only do you get to go on the ship, not only do you get to stay in that room, not only do you get to go to these beautiful places, but it's the food too. You, you get all, all of that was included. And so many times, guys, when we come into the battles of our lives, do we really understand the fullness of our salvation? That is the primary thing, that we've been made right with a holy God because of the finished work of Christ. But it's not just a future thing. There's victory today. We sing the battles of the Lord's. I, I think that we're probably the most hypocritical when we sing that. If we're really honest, how many times have you really truly given battle over to the authority of Jesus Christ in your life? It's a hard thing to do. We, we kind of give it. Sunday morning is kind of easy to pray about that, but I'm not even seen by Monday morning. I'm saying by Sunday afternoon. Man, we grab that thing back. The fullness of the gospel reaches primarily theologically our sinfulness. That is the primary thing, that we we, sinful people have been made right with the holy God. 
But it doesn't stop there. When you read Isaiah, it includes so much where he was pierced for our transgressions. That's sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's sin. Upon him was the chastisement that had brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. It's that last part. This wounds that we are healed. Yes, the sinful wounds of our, our sin and our uh, just our abuse of our rebellion against the holy God. But he takes this mocking. He takes all these things because he wants to bring total healing to us. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. When Luke tells this story, and if we lined it up in parallel, and we're seeing what happened when they take uh, you know, the, the, the robe that Christ, that they had been placed on Christ, and they take it and they begin to divide that and they begin to do that. We line up those stories. And do you know what Christ prays in the midst of this mocking? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. This is the Christ who is not surprised by the mocking, the deriding, the laughing, the spitting, the total rejection, all that he is but a Christ that in the midst of all that is loving and faithfully fulfills the prophecy and the will of the Father. I pray that we would know how deeply loved we are. If you're a believer this morning, you put your trust in Christ, have you ever, even in the midst of that, still felt alone at times? Isn't that a human challenge? That in the midst of this great theology and these great truths, that somehow, because we're still kind of having to deal with the old nature, that sometimes we can feel distant, that God doesn't care. I mean, think about, you know, what we saw in Mark, that, you know, here Jesus is sleeping in the front of the boat, and the disciples cried out, don't you care that we're perishing? And we said, what a real honest evaluation that is of where we are, or at least where our mind and our heart can go sometimes. Has your heart and your mind ever went there before? Don't you care that we're perishing? Scripture would tell us apparently he does. And in this very time when, when they are making mockery of holy God, he prays for us. What presence of mind? What? What? what who does that? My Jesus. Guys, we can get really, really complicated. I, you know, I love theology. I, I like to, to parse this and do that. I mean, I, I like all that. I, I'm nerdy enough to, to really get into that. But can you know this, Jesus? That even though he was being mocked, that he stays right on target with the... the what God has called him to do, what his Father has called him to do for your sake and for my sake. So that we truly can have healing on every level. Well, Pastor, I, you know, does that mean that my cancer is going to go away? No, it, it, we're not talking about that he's left every affirmity of this present world. We will have to face a lot of broken hearts and a lot of difficulties, mental challenges and different things like that in our lives. But the victory is there. He has already won for us the victory because of what he endured. And it was nails, and it was a crown of thorns, but it was so much more. The brokenness of their sin that brought 
us to every aspect of our life. God made us in this incredible way. He made us spiritual beings. He made us physical beings. He made us emotional beings and intellectual beings. He gave us an intellect. And all those things, God didn't separate and we have four lanes and you travel on one lane at a time. No, those are interweaved. And, and you can't separate one from the other. And so even when it comes to our salvation, even when it comes here, the way we think primarily about what Christ has accomplished by freeing us from our sin and giving us victory over sin, death, and the grave. Folks, don't leave that just as some futuristic ticket to heaven. But understand that this Christ who endured the mockery so that you and I can have a a, a certain wellness even to this day. How deep and wide and complete is this work of Christ? Peter said it this way. Would you consider Peter kind of a, an emotional kind of guided guy? Was he kind of went through the gut? You know, did he fire from the gut a lot? Yeah. We, we know this about Peter. And yet what we see in the New Testament, guided by the Holy Spirit, we begin to see a maturity in Peter that is not Peter's. It's just God in him. And he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. When he, that is talking about Christ, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And what does Peter pull in? Isaiah 53, by his wounds you've been healed. Your ability to live righteously is all through the power of Christ. That's kind of, in in my whole study of this whole thing, do we really value joy? Can you have joy in the midst of the darkest, deepest discouragement of your life? Why? Why? Because he died on the cross and he rose from a grave. These are not two different matters. The victory is ours, guys. The victory is ours. This is not empty words. This is not empty things. I'm just trying to let you see this morning. Where did Mark give this attention? He focuses on the mockery of God because there's such a level there that he wants us to really fully embrace. I believe that this wasn't just nails and a a crown of thorns. Do not make light of that. Mark doesn't make light of that. He makes much of all that Christ endured for you and for me to bring us victory in our lives. And this is our joy. Not when everything just aligns and everything is working out for us. This is our joy. This is our hope. Will Christians struggle with mental difficulties? Thank you. Thank you. Well, we get really sad at times and really discouraged and depressed. And yet there's victory. On every level, he wins victory for us. doesn't mean that we won't experience. doesn't mean that we won't have really, really kind of dark days. But in the darkest of days, there's a joy. And where is this joy coming from? This finished work of Christ in our lives. 
Make much of the nails. Make much of the blood that was spilled for you. Make much of the crown of thorns. But please make much that this Christ endured the mockery of all these groups of people. And, and it, this humility that, that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, that he does all of these things. He empties himself. Why? Because he bought our salvation and our victory. As Peter says, now we can live in righteousness in Christ Jesus. This is the victory that we get. Not becoming better versions of our old self. No, becoming a new creation in the finished work of Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, I I thank you that Mark brought out this aspect that oftentimes we would just go to the physical and Father, we would go to the, the, certainly the theological and it's important. And yet, Father, thank you for showing us just the, Christ in the midst of all this mockery that he would be praying Father forgive them that he would make a a promise then to that one thief who, who sees the beauty of Christ doesn't comprehend theologically all that's going on but he just appeals to him and Christ says today you'll be with me in paradise Father thank you for this redemptive work of Christ And Father, help us to embrace it in its fullness. Father, help us to live lives of righteousness. Help us to live in this victory. Even in the darkest of days, even in the most stressful of times, help us to find joy in the victory of Christ Jesus, Father, who paid once and for all for all those that would place their trust and their faith in his finished work. Teach us to do that even this week, Father, as we pray this. We love you, Father. We pray as we finish out Mark in the next couple of weeks, Father, that, Father, that we would embrace the fullness, the beauty of this cross and that the work of Christ was done once for all. I pray this morning, Father, that if somebody doesn't know that in such a personal way, that, Father, that you would draw them in, show them their sin and show them your Savior. And open their eyes, Father, to the beauty of this gospel. Father, I would pray, save them even this day. And we pray this in the hope of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.